Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fifth year of Brixton Book Jam. Um, so how is everyone? I can just about see you. So just a quick hello from me, and we're going to get right on with the acts tonight. Okay? So the first act we've got tonight is Kate Morrison. Kate is a British debut novelist. She studied English literature at Newhall College uh, in Cambridge and worked as a journalist, as a press officer. Morrison was men mentored by Ross Barber, the award-winning author of the Marlowe Papers and Devotion. She, is a, she was a visiting scholar with the book text and place 1500-1700 Research Centre at Bath Spa University. Kate Morrison currently lives in West Sussex with her family. And there we have it. So, Kate, come on up. Hello. I just realised that my... Can you hear me? Is that okay? So, my biography is really boring. Um, so, I'm sorry about that. I probably need to change it. Um, but I'm Kate... And it's also really weird being back here because I lived in Brixton in 2003 and it's changed a lot since then. Um, the Black Cultural Archives is now at the end of the road where I had a flat share and it seems to be about 80% whiter in general. I don't know if that's accurate, but um, it's really good to be back here because I started writing my book here in 2003. So my book is a book of secrets. Um, and it's about a girl from Ghana, which is then known as Guinea. It's set in the 16th century, and she's taken from Ghana, um, brought to England, and brought up in a Catholic family, marries a printer, and becomes involved in a lot of plots, um, secret Catholic printing presses, and espionage, while she's hunting for her lost brother. So... I started writing it here in 2003 after my downstairs neighbour in Saltoon Road, who was a Nigerian actor called Nick Monu. Um, I was talking to him about writing a book set in the 16th century. He said, you should put some black people in it because there have been black people in the UK for 2,000 years and you never see us in historical dramas or novels. Um, and I thought, hey, all right, that's a very good point. So it started from there. It's taken me a very long time to write, 16 years. Um, two children, one nervous breakdown, a few jobs, but we got them in the end. Um, it's published by Jacaranda Press, brilliant Jacaranda Press. Um, you should look them up. They've got a, an initiative next year called 20 in 2020. They're publishing 20 black British authors next year, um, so check them out. Um, so I guess I'll read a bit from the book, and then if anybody wants to ask me anything you can, or I'll just run away and carry on drinking my vodka, because I don't get out much. <laughs> Hang on. Okay. So this is from chapter one. I have a riddle in my hands that can kill a man. It may kill John Robardine, who was once my lover and is now my enemy. If I tell the right person the meaning of this riddle, Men will ride up to Robertine's house and drag him away from it. His lands will be seized, his treasure forfeit. They will take him over the bad Sussex roads, through the weald and clay and the woods where the iron forges smolder in the night, all the way to London. He will ride in under the traitor's gate on Southwark Bridge, and they will take him to a traitor's room in the tower. 
There he will stay till they take him out to hang. We made that journey to London together once when he was a sunburned apprentice with a salt voice and sea green eyes, and I was a little maid whose life and family had been swallowed up by a thunderclap. Who am I now? Can I condemn him to death? The paper that may hang him has only a few words written on it. 10 Culver, 10 Robin, 15 a bird. It's innocent enough, seemingly. 10 doves, 10 robins at a certain price. But Robert Dean is no bird catcher. He trades now in larger prey. I've been sitting in the empty print room since sundown, burning precious candles, trying to dig wisdom from the thickest part of the night. Little flickers of reflected flame spark out from the cases of type as all the letters sit in their allotted ranks, waiting to be formed into any words I choose. I could pick out a T now with my eyes closed. I know the place of every letter, comma, and stop by heart. The bronze heirlooms my, brother, my mother bought from Africa lie on the table before me, stamped with their own secret language. I turn the little bird figurine over in my hand, trying to read deeper than words. I hold it up to the light, and its eye squints gold in the candle flame. Go back and fetch what you forgot, it says. Look over your shoulder and learn what the past has to teach you so you can decide where to walk next. Can the past help me solve this riddle? Since I was born, other people have given me names and told me who and what I am. I don't remember my father or my mother, and I knew almost nothing about the land of my birth when I was growing up. That has left me with a strange weightlessness, like the swifts that stay on the wing their whole lives. I think of my son, who will know his place in the world. I imagine him in the future, reading aloud to his wife in a wood-panelled room, large and fine. I know this room. I can picture it exactly. One wall is full of his books, and the others beautifully carved with birds and scrolls. His head will be a store of knowledge, and his house will be a store of good things. He will lack for nothing. I can make that future real for him if I break this cipher. I have had enough of people telling me who I am. I have had enough of the names they give me. I will do it. I will look over my shoulder. I will go back and fetch it. Give it up for, give it up for Kate, ladies and gentlemen. Really amazing. If you like the sound of that book, our booksellers at the back will be selling everyone's books tonight. So get your pennies out. Um, our next uh, author is Alison Rudd. She's been a financial reporter, a football writer for The Times for about eight years, the editor of The Times Book Club. Her debut novel, sorry, her debut novel, what's that? Sounds like Chernobyl. Um, her debut novel, The First Time Lauren Paling Died, will be out in November. It's about a young girl who lives a different version of herself after she dies. She has 10,000 followers on Twitter and you can follow her at Alison, Alison Allyrudd underscore times dot. Yeah? Okay, so give it up for Alison. Hi everyone, it's lovely to be here. Um, this is the first time I've read from the book. So, but as I wrote it, it shouldn't be that difficult, but you never know, I might stumble over a few words. Uh, it's a book, the first time Lauren Paling died, it's a book that accepts that there are parallel worlds, millions of them. Uh, it's a bit like a sliding doors concept. And um, 
where I start is that we've reached the early 1980s and Lauren has spent her childhood peering through metallic beams that are windows to parallel worlds. She's the only person in this world that can see them. Um, she's 13 and in this world she's just died. It's not much of a spoiler because it's very early on, right? Whereas other little girls in the willows might have clasped their hands together and prayed to God or to Jesus or to grandparents in heaven or a pet in the afterlife, Lauren had formulated her own religion. It had never been taught to her at brownies or Sunday school or in an assembly. She'd not heard it mentioned on television or in the conversations grown-ups had over cups of tea or gin and tonics. Lauren had always had her sunbeams, and they had always shown her windows to other places. She was sure that everyone had these other worlds, but that for some reason, no one else could see them. What was the point of it all, she couldn't be sure. But her beams suggested to her that instead of dying, she could shift. Shifting was, she thought, more sensible than heaven, more convenient than heaven, more realistic than heaven nicer than heaven. Her granddad Alfie had confirmed it. We carry on, granddad Alfie had whispered to her when she was eight or nine and had asked him if he would still be able to see her when he died. Where, she'd whispered back, somewhere nicer or at least somewhere where we aren't dead, he'd laughed throatily. But Lauren had not laughed along. She'd simply nodded seriously and he'd stopped laughing and nodded too. When granddad Alfie had died, she had known he'd not been ready to actually die. He was sprightly and funny and liked to beat younger men at cards. He had carried on regardless, she was sure of it. He had carried on oblivious to the silent tears of Granny Beryl, the misery of Vera, and the sad hymns in the church. That had not been her granddad's time, and this was most certainly not Lauren's time. She was 13, she could not die. She opened her eyes. She was in a hospital bed and she was sore. She could not move her head. It was being held in place by a plastic contraption that made her feel claustrophobic. Her mother's face loomed into view. Vera, her mother, was both relieved and panic-stricken. Vera looked different somehow beyond the frown of desperation. Lauren forgot about the pain and the mounting unease and stared at her mother's face. Though it was not what she was expecting, she recognised the face. She had seen it pouting sadly through the magic glass. Hello, other mummy, she whispered through cracked lips before sinking back into unconsciousness. The next waking was an emotional affair. Vera stroked her daughter's cheek, trying to disguise how hurt she felt that Lauren seemed ever so slightly to flinch. Lauren sneaked a glance at her mother's forehead. It was dirty, how ridiculous. Had she tried to apply her eyebrow pencil while driving? You've got stuff on your face, Mum, Lauren said. Oh, Vera said, disappointed, adding with false brightness, I I'll go to the bathroom mirror. Vera returned, having rubbed off the faint traces of rouge she had applied simply to disguise her anxious pallor so as not to worry her daughter. But Lauren had slipped back to sleep. Vera waited. It hurt to move, but her right arm was unharmed, so Lauren gingerly lifted her hand to her mouth and licked her forefinger. Lean closer, Mum, she said, and gently rubbed at her mother's forehead. This time it was Vera's turn to flinch. 
She'd never liked her mole to be touched. Lauren frowned. The small but annoying mark on her mother's face was not flat, but raised and rubbery and solid, and not at all like a smudge of eyebrow pencil or an errant piece of melted chocolate. She squinted at Vera suspiciously, and then at her own right hand. There was silence while Vera realized that the spot her daughter was trying to rub away had always been there. What a funny thing to forget about, darling, Vera said, again with forced brightness. I didn't forget, Lauren said angrily, but she was bereft more than angry, and she wondered why she felt as if her mother were dead when there she sat on the bed, breathing and talking and being so obviously loving. Through her recuperation, her parents and her mother in particular had been attentive and doting, but Lauren had become frustrated by Bob and Vera's lack of a sense of fun. Before her holiday to Cornwall, Lauren had hated Benny Hill, but loved how her father had giggled like a schoolboy in front of the television. Mr. Hill had now vanished from their lives, and so had the giggles. Have they stopped making? Lauren started to ask, but she discovered she suddenly could not remember the comedian's name. She closed her eyes and tried to picture his face, but she could not even do that. The harder she tried, the more distant he became, and within the hour, she had forgotten that such a man had ever existed. Gradually, Lauren forgot she must have shifted to somewhere else. So many things felt off kilter, but there were small things, and the doctors said she might have lapses in memory. She didn't push the point. She didn't tell them that her past felt skewed. She didn't want these tiny electric shocks of surprise. She wanted to feel she belonged, and so she willed it that Dad was Dad, and her other mummy was simply her only mummy. Thank you, Alison. That was really good. Um, it's kind of a book I'd quite like to read. It's got lots of mystery. Um, the next uh, writer we've got tonight is Kate Cherney. She's a native New Yorker with a background in film production and development acting, theatre and contemporary art. She holds an MA in script writing from Goldsmiths University. Her short film and two one-act plays have been produced in London, where she lives with her husband and two children. Happy as Larry is her first novel, which has been optioned for, for TV by New York Post Entertainment. So, up you come, Cater. Looking forward to hearing your short story. I feel like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel right now. Okay, this is the author's note from Happy as Larry, a New York story of cults, crushes, and quaaludes. There was, there was, and yet there was not. That was the opening to a Georgian folktale my mom used to read to me. And in many ways, this contradictory notion holds true from my book. There was an almighty chaos which set in after my father died. In no particular order, my family's finances seesawed, routines went out the window, and my older siblings joined the Sullivanians, a cult that thrived on New York's Upper West Side until it disbanded in the late 80s. Our mom sought to reclaim her happiness with someone who made us children unhappy, and in my own blunderbuss fashion, I found my moxie with friends who are still my go-to people to this day. Memory is an unreliable narrator. 
I wanted the freedom to condense time and not be beholden to biographic particulars. So I reimagined these events, firstly by making my fictionalized self eight years older than I was in real life when we were bereaved. I have written truthfully about my experience without necessarily being truthful to the facts. I have taken liberties with events I was not privy to or which I heard about secondhand. By writing in the third person, I allowed Saskia to become a character who is me and not me. This in turn gave me the vehicle to be private and public. The only time I wrote in the first person is in the following excerpt, which was my very first stab at tackling this story. Most importantly, I wanted to portray the exquisite peculiarities of growing up in a New York that no longer exists and pay homage to a city that will forever make my heart skip a beat. As in any good folktale, we eventually had a happy enough ending. We pulled through it, and then some, with an abundance of love, red wine, and dark humor. Some people have a bad hair day, but I had a bad hair decade. Looking back on it, I guess you could say that was the least of my problems. You see, my problems were of the chemical type, the fun, up till dawn, downtown, party girl sort, and the sort where cesium meets water and the world as you know it blows up in your face. I've since traded in living on that little island off the east coast of America for another soggier one off the northwest coast of Europe. Mostly, I have good hair days now, thanks to brand name products and the knowledge I've gained over the years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This isn't a story about hair care and island hopping. It's about the time when we stopped being we after daddy died. I think of my father when I smell turpentine and cigarettes, baseball and highballs, Rothko Reds and the blue notes of jazz. NYC is my DNA. Blondie and the great blackout are in my bloodline. Broadway is a river in me, and my family are the rocks, worn smooth, which, no matter how far I travel, will always remain at the center of my being. Chapter one, no place like home. Chelsea, New York, 1977. Right now, as the lights in the Empire State Building are being switched off, Saskia beholds the swagger of the city at dawn and feels her soul-changing colors. For the second time that night, Manhattan has held her to her heart and shown her the impossibility of darkness in the light of day. She crosses 7th Avenue when the walk sign changes and starts down the stairs to the uptown local, but stops mid-step when a white limousine with a wilted bouquet of flowers on its hood cruises to a halt and double parks at the corner of 23rd Street. She hurries back to street level, wondering if it's that very same limo from that night way back when, before the, sh before the world as she knew it fell down. She cautiously traces her reflection in its darkened window. It's as though only the pane of glass separates her from the past. True, she has the same curly hair and green eyes, but the scab on her thinned cheek and the faint red marks around her neck are as different as the girl she was two and something years ago. She seems to reach into herself as she watches the limo pull off and disappear into traffic. 
Instead of continuing to the uptown train, she ducks into a 24-hour deli where she selects a legal pad, a pen, a can of seltzer, and a box of Cracker Jacks. By the time she boards the downtown local, it's light outside. Okay, so next we have Bobby Derbyshire, who won the 2008 Fiction Prize at the National Academy of Writing and the New Delta Review Creative Non-Fiction Prize in 2010. Her latest novel is The Posthumous Adventures of Harry Whittaker, and she's also the author of Oz, Love, Revenge and Buttered Scones, and The Truth Games. She has worked as a barmaid, mushroom picker, film extra, maths coach, cabinet minister's private secretary, care assistant, adult literature teacher, and in social research and government policy. Bobby lives in Battersea and hosts a writer's group. Hi, it's great to be here in this wonderful event. My name is Bobby Derbyshire, and my fourth novel came out this year, and readers are actually loving it, which is wonderful. Um, here's what it looks like. Um, it's called The Posthumous Adventures of Harry Whittaker. Harry is a world-famous superstar actor. You have to think Jack Nicholson crossed with Laurence Olivier. Thank you. He is very selfish and vain, and on page one, he dies. But to his astonishment, he finds that he's still here among us in this world, although we can't see him. His son, Richard, pedaling on the bicycle on the cover, is trying to escape a dotty mother, a failing seaside cafe, and the wrong girlfriend. As a taster, I'll read some of chapter one, starting from the beginning. And you're listening to the radio. And now, yes, news just in. We're getting reports that actor Harry Whittaker has been rushed to hospital after collapsing on set. Stay tuned and we'll keep you updated. Sadly, we now have confirmation that Lord Harold Whittaker is critically ill after suffering what is thought to be a heart attack while filming King Lear. Over now to our reporter, Jerry Matteson. Thank you, Bridget. I'm at St. Thomas's Hospital, London, amidst what I expect you can hear is a large crowd, many of whom are in tears, fearing the worst. Lord Whitaker, who last year was awarded the Order of Merit, may be 82, but he remains probably the most gifted actor the world has yet known. And now we're with Harry. I snap awake into startling light, an emergency room in sharp focus, uproar and commotion, doctors battling to save me. But thank my stars, what relief, I've survived. I'm going to be fine, I just know it. The pain is gone, vanished completely, and now, now there's a glorious absence of feeling, almost as if I were, stand back, shouts the consultant, and I glance down and see, oh, horrible, a purple face, eyes blank and empty, only inches away. 
a white-bearded old man in a frightening state, sprawled in the chaos, jolted by the shock to his chest. He is me. There's no way to deny it. I struggle to yell, but no sound emerges. Lips, teeth, vocal cords, save me, where are they? The old man still has them. His mouth sagging open contains them. Quick, quick, I must get back inside. I will myself forward. And yes, willing it carries me nearer. Let me in, let me in. But how? There's no way. The crash team share my feverish need. They have magic and hope in their eyes. Come on, you can do it, I would roar if I could. The great man isn't gone. This can't be the end of him. Surely they can thump and shock him awake. The consultant is speaking. No use. All agreed? Not agreed, I'm trying to shout. Where's my own doctor? Then, hey, be careful. The consultant's hand zips past me. Or was it through me? And, no, wait. Now he's closing the eyes. I'm still urging to focus and blink the mouth that should be protesting. He's drawing the tattered remnants of an Elizabethan shirt over the frail, bruised chest. I'm dead, that's what he's saying. Yet here I am, seeing and hearing. And now I'm cutting to the end of chapter one. The porters are moving in on the body, but I've no more desire to watch. The show here is over. It's time to embrace my new role. Though I scarcely know what I am, things may not be so bad. An atheist, who expected nothing but nothingness, wakes in an afterlife bristling with possibilities. I shall head out to the crowd, find some journalists, hear their somber reports to camera beamed live to the nation, multiplying across the internet. Then what is to stop me? I can go anywhere, eavesdrop on anyone, see if not touch the most beautiful women. But help, what is happening? Try as I may, however I think it, I cannot get away from the body. I can glide along to its feet, splayed in the gray silk socks I put on this morning. I can turn, rise two feet in the air and float back again to its head. I can insinuate myself under the sheet and slip out again, but I cannot escape it. The porters are wheeling it from the room, across to a lift, and off I go with it like a helium balloon on a string. Hang on, stop, help me please, this cannot be right. The Posthumous Adventures of Harry Whittaker is at the knockdown price of five quid over at the bookshop. As is my previous novel, Oz, which is a story of family secrets, which is set locally in and around Clapham Junction. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby.